Hey y'all, I'm Kim. And I'm Joanne. We are the registered dietitian nutritionists and hosts of Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne. So we wanted to tell you what our podcast is all about. Our podcast is designed to educate and excite conversations in women's health, food, nutrition, wellness, and cross-cultural health topics. Every week, we'll discuss proven techniques with an entertaining flair to energize you and encourage you in your journey to a healthier, physical, mental, and social well-being. So hold up, hold up, Jay. We're going to tell them what this means in other words. So our podcast isn't only focused on the black and white of food and nutrition, because you know if you have a problem, your problem is almost always a different shade of gray. Am I right? right? For instance, one can argue that kale is healthier than spinach, but is it really though? In Nutrition Lifestyles, we're going to take you on a journey. We're going to teach you how to break down the latest craze in food when it comes down to pop culture. So if your goal is to live a better lifestyle and you are interested in becoming a better you, then listen to this episode to find out how. And also subscribe to Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. And don't forget to share this with your friends. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne. So in a previous episode, the one that was on body positivity for a cultured society, we discussed how now in today's society, we are now praising mm-hmm. wide hips and washboard stomachs and apple bottoms and people having big breasts. And it's now the standard of beauty. But in today's episode, we want to discuss another body fallacy that is often plaguing women And that is skinny privilege. Right. So skinny privilege, also called thin privilege, is an ideology that people have special rights or some kind of immunity when they are thin. Thin privilege is very dominant in society and people are rewarded for their height to weight ratio. So just to give you guys an example of the prevalence of thin privilege in society, the former company that I used to work with, I used to have quarterly health checkups. And they were always concerned about my BMI. They would always tell me, well, Kim, for your height, your weight should be X, Y, Z. And I would always get a discount for keeping my BMI within a normal range. That is so funny. And I've actually seen this practice with different companies. And I think the reason why they do it is because they're trying to get their insurance rates down. Exactly. So basically, in my view, they were practicing weight-based healthcare, which which is not necessarily the best. Mm, So let me just go back and discuss what the BMI is. So BMI stands for body mass index, and it is your weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters square. The number that results from the BMI is used to determine if you are overweight or obese underweight or within a normal weight range. But the BMI does have some limitations. Mm -hmm. So historically speaking, and I'm not sure if I'm going to say this name right, Adolf Quillette was a European social physicist who came up with the BMI. And the BMI was based off of the height and weight ratio of white men. Mm. Did you hear what I just said? White Mm -hmm. men. So the big drawback, especially seeing that the BMI is generalized for all populations, no matter their age, their gender, their ethnicity, ethnicity, this is a huge drawback. And I know a lot of us do not look like white men. So why in the world? (laughs) Exactly. That is my exact point. 
So this practice is prevalent, as I alluded to earlier, in weight-based healthcare. So the weight-based healthcare is not taking this into consideration. So the second thing that the BMI lacks is that it does not take into consideration muscle mass percentage. So again, to give you guys a visual, because Joanne and I are visual learners, you guys know what Dwayne The Rock Johnson looks like, right? We do. His BMI is (laughs) 30.8. Which, if you look on the BMI charts, that number is indicative of being obese. I know you guys have seen The Rock without his shirt on. Do y'all think that man is obese in any way or form? There's nothing obese about that man's body. (laughs) Exactly. So society in many ways reward men and women for being thin and appearing thin. So as Kim mentioned earlier, she got a discount on her health insurance related to her weight, right? I think about how before the apple bottom jean era, how hard it was for curvy black women to find nice jeans that fit them. So I grew up in the 90s and I had friends with the definition of a Coca-Cola body and they could not find pants that would fit them. It was hard to find jeans that they wanted to Mm. wear that would fit their hips and their thighs and basically that wouldn't have like their butt cracks hanging out of their pants. So... (laughs) Although I myself am not a big booty girl, I can definitely speak to how I've seen the struggle in the black culture. Historically, black and Hispanic women have always had, you know, a more voluptuous body than white women. And we've been the victims of thin privilege until recently, that is, right? So for instance, this is a great example. If you guys know the story of Sarah Bartman, She was one of two African women in the 19th century that was put on display in a human zoo, if you can believe that, because of her physique under the offensive name of Hotentot Venus. So because she had white hips and she had an apple bottom, for European onlookers, it was something that was unique because amongst their population, that body type was not something that they had. So it was something for them to be in awe of and everybody wanted to see it. So they put it in this human zoo. The funny thing is like, if you guys have seen movies, y'all don't remember like the fashion that the European women wore often mimicked what we would today call a teacup booty. Right. Like they'll wear it, right? They would have like, um, I guess a, a cage-like bustle and it looked like uh metal to me but i'm not quite sure what it was made out of and that cage like bustle would go (laughs) under their dresses and it would make them appear to have a big old booty it sounds very ridiculous but i mean i do remember seeing some of these pieces like me for instance and this is not no promo um, I used to watch Downton Abbey a lot. And Ooh, the grandmother. I love Downton Abbey. The grandmother would always be in those type mm-hmm. of dresses. So I'm assuming the draw to the Sarah Bartman, you know, putting her in a human zoo was that because of the fact that she wasn't natural, she was naturally shaped this way. They wanted to look at something that they actually wanted to look like because their clothes their clothes were were designed in this fashion and they actually found somebody who looked this way. So they were putting these people on display in a human zoo. So it's, it's just crazy to me that this was being done back then. Mainstream media now is making it popular for women to be curvy. So yeah. where we would have been made to feel like we were animals to be put on display, 
Now it's the in look to be curvy. You know, you have the King Kardashians and whatnot. But don't be fooled about all this because fat phobia is still here. It's not disappearing. It's very present in today's society. I'm going to let Kim go a little bit more into detail about what fat phobia is exactly. It is defined as fear of being fat, becoming fat, or the general dislike of fat. Um, and you guys know that fat definitely does have a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. So I had a friend of mine, it was actually a coworker. It was about a year, maybe a year and a half ago. And she was sharing with me that she had to fly from Florida to somewhere up north. I think it was Ohio or Iowa to visit her brother. And she told me five years prior when she flew, she had to buy two seats on the airplane because of her weight and her girth. So she was just very scared of flying this time because she was stating that she could not afford to buy two airplane seats. So what she did this time, she called the airline and I guess the airline asked her some questions. It kind of got a little fuzzy about her girth and her weight. And the airline told her that she actually had to purchase two seats. I have heard of this before, actually. And if some of you guys are This Is Us fans, if you remember, there was an episode where one of the actresses, their their character on the show was going through the same thing when she was flying and she had to purchase two tickets. And mm. even she traveled with like a seatbelt extender. Wow. And for me, this is kind of odd because when you watch TV, there are a lot of commercials that are that are promoting processed foods as well as fast foods, which encourage individuals to gain weight. So I don't understand how these commercials are promoting these foods, yet society has this fat phobia. This is so true. I agree. But in general, I think the word fat, as I stated earlier, carries a negative connotation. Like, just think about it. This may be a broad generalization, but what imagery comes to your mind when you hear that word? I don't think anyone ever thinks of the protective benefit of fat covering the vital organs of the body or maintaining the cell membrane or even omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids, which have a positive impact on the heart and the brain. Yeah, I, I can definitely tell you that most people do not think of any of what you just said right. when they think of fat. So, you know, skinniness in our society is no longer the defining criteria for health. And now we're talking a lot about body positivity and it's suddenly it's like the end thing, right? Right. But as women of color, women in the black community, we have always loved our bodies, but we haven't really had that support to have positive outlook on our bodies. As a matter of fact, Kim, I know you can back me up on this. So growing up in a Caribbean family, being thin was frowned upon. So you would be told like, you know, you need to go put some meat on your body if they thought you were too skinny, clean your plate, eat the food on your plate, stop, you know, wasting food. And in Haiti, actually, for my master's thesis, my master's thesis in grad school, I focused on the Haitian American population. And in the writing that I did, um, I talked about how size in Haiti is equated to your socioeconomic status. Is it the same way in Jamaica? Yeah, yeah, it actually is. Well, 
now it's not, but it was. It was, right, right. Now it's not really like it was in Haiti either. But growing up or my first seven years in life that I remember and what my parents told me, this is how it was in Haiti. So your size is equated to your socioeconomic status. So if a person is skinny, they would be equated to being poor and not being able to afford food while a person with more quote unquote meat on their bodies would be equated to having money and being able to afford food. So as a matter of fact, I found in my, in my thesis that people who were living actually off the fat of the land, quote unquote, they actually had healthier body measures or healthier um, blood pressures, for example, blood glucose measures, their hemoglobins, um, all those were within normal measures this was different from their counterparts Hmm. who were Mm -hmm. eating Mm -hmm. more food because they or eating more processed foods i should say because they had more money and they were not what you would deem as being on the skinnier side of things um now in society we are talking more about body positivity because well white society is embracing right (laughs) body positivity and it is now cross-culturally accepted and it's a thing that is normal when historically we've always looked like this like we've always wanted to accept our bodies and the way we looked but it wasn't promoted and supported as it should have so we started thinking of ourselves like we need to um, look a certain way to fit the clothes that were available to us and look a certain way because we didn't want other you know people in our society looking at us crazy because we had these big booties and um, big breasts or whatnot. So most people usually think race has nothing to do with this issue, but it's actually an integral part simply because of the physiological experiences that the black community experiences. Um, so in my practice, actually BMI body mass index is not something that I like to use. I don't use it as a measure of progress, just like I don't like using the scale as a measure of progress for my clients. I actually like to use body fat percent just for the simple fact of what Kim was saying earlier is that body mass index does not look at what that mass is composed of. So we can say somebody's obese, like she calculated the rock being, but the mass that is causing that quote unquote obesity that he was categorized as, or he is categorized that as is really muscle mass. So I like to look at body fat percent. That's what I use as a form of uh, progress or a tool. Yeah, and I I really don't blame you. I really don't. So Sarah Bartman and Black women are not the only people who have faced uh, discrimination related to their physique. Men have faced it as well. Uh, Black men who have a certain build are expected to, quote unquote, shut up and play basketball or football or baseball. You you remember that quote? I, I remember it. I remember it. <laughs> I <laughs> Okay. I definitely remember who said it. Okay. So we're not going to say who said it, but you guys do your own research on that. Right. And also postpartum women are just expected to miraculously snap back to their pre-pregnancy weight after giving birth. This is why we said earlier, fat phobia is not disappearing. It is ever present and ever evolving. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you guys, as a mother of four boys, I'm always being told, oh, Joanne, you have snapped back and you are snapping back real quickly is what people are currently telling me, which 
it's far from the truth because of the simple fact that that's not my genetic predisposition, first of all. And second of all, I don't even focus on that. Um, you know, the reality is it typically takes me about 40 weeks to go back to what I was before pregnancy. And that makes sense because, you know, it takes about 40 weeks for me to put on the weight and grow this little human that I grew. So it would make sense that it takes me about 40 weeks for me to lose all the weight and go back to what I was before. I definitely do not snap back. It doesn't take me six weeks to do, you know, to get back to where I was at before. And I don't even give myself that stress of trying to do that because my focus right now is on sleep and taking care of this little baby boy that I just had. So, you know, I'm glad that you said, Joanne, that you're not you know, focused on stressing yourself out of, you know, snapping back. So, you know, this is something that I want to do touch on just a little bit more because that fat phobia is is evolving into society and pressuring women of childbearing years. So I have a few questions to ask you because you're the mama. So related to prenatal care, how much should a woman be eating when they are actually pregnant? You know, the funny thing is that We've heard this before, the thought of eating for two. You know, it's not real. You know, you're not really eating for two. You're eating to for yourself and to have enough nutrients in your body to provide for this baby that you're growing. So initially, like the first three months, you don't even need to add any additional calories from what you were already eating. Continue to do the same thing you were eating, um, the same thing you were doing, excuse me, prior to getting pregnant and don't add any extra calories or any of the sort until you get to the third month, which is the second trimester. Mm, So you hear that ladies, not until your second trimester. The next question is when do you actually need to start increasing calories? It's, it's in that second trimester. Right. So it's your second trimester. That's when you start increasing your calories and you're only adding 300 calories, approximately 300 calories. And it differs from people for, um, from person to person, because as usual, we're looking at your activity levels during the day. Like if you're very active, it may be more than 300 that you're adding to what you were already eating. So it varies from person to person. The average is 300 calories. Hmm. So what kind of foods should and should you not be eating? Oh my goodness. This area is so funny to me um, because if you were to ask someone from the Caribbean this question, they'd have all kinds of things that I need to add. You know, my mom would tell me all kinds of stuff that I need to add to help with labor. And some of it may be true. Who knows? But I like to eat. Um, so I like to eat a lot of different foods and I don't like um, omitting a lot of things, but scientifically speaking, there are some foods that you should omit. My recommendation is always to admit, omit alcohol. Right. Because of the fact that every person differs. And I know, you know, the literature is controversial in this area where you'll find some places that says, okay, it's fine for you to have a glass of wine and you won't have any issues. But I always say you never know. You never know from person to person. Why take the risk of putting your child at risk for fetal alcohol syndrome um, when you don't know how your body's going to react to the alcohol? So I always say omit alcohol. Limit your intake of caffeine. The recommendation is about one cup a day if you are pregnant. So not over consuming um, caffeine. And when it comes to your deli meats, you need to 
limit your intake of that. Or when you're eating deli meats, I should say you should warm it up because it reduces your exposure to listeria, which is found in deli meats and can cross the placenta and affect your baby. So you want to limit your intake of that. But aside from those foods, oh, I forgot um, fish. So when it comes to fish, you're wanting to limit your intake because of the mercury content, not because fish itself has bad components to it, but being out in the ocean, it is exposed to a lot of mercury. And because of that, you want to limit your intake to about once or twice a week. But aside from that, you're not really limiting yourself from, you know, most food. Yeah. So basically eating the rainbow. Right. Eating the rainbow. So let's talk a little bit about postpartum care. So do you need to increase your calories after giving birth? So right now what I'm doing, so I just had a baby and he's about six weeks old now. And I'm eating the same way I was eating when I was pregnant. So the three to 500 calories that I added um, after my three months, my first trimester. So during my second and third trimester, I'm pretty much eating the same way because I am a breastfeeding mother and I want to make sure that I'm not limiting myself to the calories that I, that I need for breastfeeding um, and to promote breastfeeding. So is this different for non-breastfeeding moms? Yeah, it would be different from non-breastfeeding moms because they're, they're not having to worry about making sure that they're having enough calories to make the breast milk or pr- produce that breast milk that they need. So with non-breastfeeding moms who are formula feeding their, their infant, they can reduce their, um, their calories. So removing that 300 to 500 that you had added during pregnancy and going back to what you need for your height and weight and your activities of daily, daily living. Hmm, That's good to know. So are there any foods which are best after giving birth? Not anything different than what you would be doing when you were pregnant. I mean, the goal is to always eat adequately, consume enough calories and not depriving yourself of calories. And of course, making sure you're eating the rainbow, like we always said, like same amount of rainbow looking foods that you were eating when you were pregnant. You know, you need to be just as colorful when you are um, going through the postpartum period. Yeah, you know, and that's so true because the other day on Instagram, Joanne, you had posted on your stories a green smoothie you were having for breakfast. And I was like, look at Joanne. I was trying. I'm trying to go back into it. My my peoples have left. The temptations of the Haitian good food is gone. So I'm like, I got to start back on my greens in the morning. True. So how soon should you worry about weight loss after the baby is here? And I think that is the burning question. So after baby is here, you know, for me, I don't worry about weight loss until the fourth or sixth month. And, you know, with breastfeeding mothers, we are often feeling hungry and you can overeat as a breastfeeding mom. Um, But typically while breastfeeding, you are shedding a lot of weight because you're burning a lot of calories. So for me, I'm not worrying about weight loss until the fourth or sixth month, because that's when I start um, introducing foods to my baby. So around the six month period, five and a half months, six months is when I start introducing table foods. And that's when I'm not as worried about how much breast milk I'm producing because they're now 
going through the transition of, uh, depending on my breast milk and depending on table food as their, their meals. So I can now really start working out and not worry about caloric deprivation because of the fact that they're going to be getting foods from the food or they're going to be getting nutrients from the table foods that they're eating. So seeing that you just mentioned caloric deprivation, so do you need to lose the baby weight in a specific amount of time? Like, you know, some women say, okay, like by six months, I'm going to beat my pre-pregnancy weight. No, no, we, we already know that society basically forcing us into doing things um, the way they want us to do it. Of course, you know, we're not promoting people to carry excess baggage of weight that they've gained during pregnancy, but we're also not forcing and promoting people to lose weight in a certain amount of time. There's no such thing. Like everybody does things in their own time. How fast I lose weight and how fast the next po- or postpartum mom lose weight are going to be totally different because my lifestyle may be different from yours. My ability to work out every day may be different from you. You may not be able to work out every day. Maybe you're able to work out a few times a week or maybe on the weekends. Um, having somebody to watch your baby may not be accessible to you. So comparing yourself to what I'm doing and what the next person is doing, you're basically setting yourself up for failure. Final, um, let's focus on the snapback culture just a little bit. So should we focus on it or is it just another stressor? It is another stressor. You know, focusing on snapping back because that's what we're seeing celebrities doing. Although, I don't know if you've seen this recently, how celebrities are fighting back and are not snapping back, quote unquote, because they know it's unreal. So Mm. I've seen a lot of celebrities talking about this. Um, But, you know, snapback culture is a lie. It's not something that we can do in that six week time frame that they like to talk about. It's a stressor that you're adding to your life when you already have enough stressors. You're trying to take care of an infant. You are lacking sleep. And to add the stressor of trying to snap back in a period of time, that's just crazy. It's ludicrous. Yeah, it definitely is. And something that I did want to say, the the premise of lacking sleep and also starting your exercise, when you start exercising, your regimen is going to be definitely individualized. I don't want us to think we're Masi Arias and we're out here when we're going hard. No, I mean, you guys, you just grew, grew a whole human inside of you. So definitely the exercising should, when you start out, should be um, low intensity as well. You don't want to cause any more harm. So Joanne, tell us a little bit about your exercise regimen, because I know you are exercise junkie and this is your fourth time. So you're a guru at this. Right. So even with Masi, she even promotes, even if, if I can remember correctly, like a healthy way about going, you know, to do this. Like she wasn't like going ham at it immediately. Um, and even recently, I think I remember her saying something like she doesn't really post pictures of her body like that, like she used to, because she don't want people focusing on how she looks, but more about like the lifestyle, the healthy lifestyle that she's promoting. Right. So for me right now, you know, I just got the clear from my doctor. I just went to the doctor and they cleared me to be able to do exercises. So I'm starting it slow. I'm taking walks with my baby. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm not, I haven't jumped on my tread, um, not my treadmill, my elliptical yet. Cause I have an elliptical at the house. I haven't jumped on it yet. I'm just taking walks with the baby in the afternoon to get my body used to walking and exercising again. 
So that's how I start out. Now, in about maybe a couple of weeks to a month from now, I'm going to jump on my elliptical. And I'm probably going to start out slowly because, again, for me, my breast milk is more important than losing this weight in a timely period. I don't want to shock my system into, you know, caloric deprivation so that I'm not producing enough breast milk because I'm not trying to um, formula feed my kid. That's my preference. You know, and I love that. I love the fact that you said you are not willing to put your breast milk supply at risk. And, you know, also like the nutrients for yourself and your infant, you're not willing to go in any type of nutrient deficiency just to snap back. Right. Mm -hmm. So let me stress this as we tie it all in. I don't want anyone out there thinking that these two dietitians who are nutrition experts are promoting being overweight or obese. We're not doing any of that. Right. We're not. Not at all. What we are promoting is a healthy lifestyle, which can be done whether you are thin or whether you are curvy. Not everyone wants to have a thin frame and not everyone wants to be curvy. Although you can be unhealthy at every end of the spectrum, whether you're thin or curvy, you can also acquire a healthy lifestyle, which we have been pushing in every episode, such as eating the rainbow, making sure that you have a variety of nutrients on your plate. As usual, the goal is to live a healthy, nutritious lifestyle by increasing the colors on your plate, which adds more fiber and more nutrients to your food. As you guys should know by now, we are big promoters of the plate method, which is making half of your plate colorful fruits and vegetables, one fourth starch and the other one fourth protein of your choice. So yes, I totally agree with all that Kim just said. So just keep in mind that our our goal here is to help you guys live a nutrition, a nutritious lifestyle as usual. Please remember to give us five stars and share this episode with your friends and family. Thanks for listening. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. If you haven't subscribed to the Nutrition Lifestyles podcast, please do so. Most importantly, we want to extend a special invitation to you to join the Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne Facebook page and the Nutrition Lifestyles pod club. You were not meant to do this alone. It is important for us to surround ourselves with people who mirror positivity related to health and nutrition. So all you have to do to follow our page and join our private pod club is hop on over to Facebook and search for Nutrition Lifestyles Pod Club and the Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne page. Click on the join and like buttons respectively, and then you will gain access to tips to jumpstart a nutritious lifestyle a tribe to cheer you on your journey, hot topics on health and nutrition, and also it's a hub to connect with me and Kim. We are really looking forward to mingling with you. So see you on Facebook.